This is Fine Rambles, number 170. All right, I did my first crypto episode on May 3rd. That's a little over three months ago. And it's the day Chia, Chia, went public. Now, you want to talk about crypto volatility? Per coin market cap, Chia opened around 1500 It dropped below 600 and then it hit 1600 on the 16th of May. And since then, it's been a long, slow slide to around 250 So in the exploration of infinite dimension space that is crypto, Chia is one experiment that seems, you know, I don't have a lot of detailed knowledge on how the protocol is going, but it seems to be fading. But, <laughs> but, 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 just look at how many plots are being gardened. And remember, this was proof of time and space, so every plot is 100 Gibby bytes on a hard drive. In early May, there were 10 million of these plots being gardened at 100 Gibby bytes each, or about one XB byte. And an XB byte, I had to look this up, an XB byte is 1.024 exabytes. Again, it's it's binary, so so you know, two to the tenth is a thousand and twenty-four. An exabyte is one quintillion bytes. <laughs> right? So it's it's million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion. And now, right, there was one exabyte back in early May. There are now 33 XB bytes of network space or 330 million plots. That's almost 200,000 Seagate 18 terabyte drives running all the time to try to earn, I think it's $500 worth of Chia every 10 minutes. That's if my math's right, which it probably isn't. Now, this is the kind of thing that makes Nassim Taleb skeptical about Bitcoin. If, and this is a big if, if I have his argument correct. I think his argument is this. For Bitcoin to have value, for any crypto to have value, an enormous network of computers and programmers have to be working all the time to find transactions, gather them into blocks, and do the work necessary to find that block's nonce that delivers the proper hash. Now, how many of those computers are in Faraday cages and therefore protected from solar flares or EMPs? How many have independent power generators and are therefore protected from power outages? The good news is that Bitcoin computers are highly distributed. The risk is that those computers and programmers, those those miners, need to be continually paid to maintain that network. Now, will conditions enable this continual stream of payments for the next 100 years? I, I don't know. Now, for a dollar, for a U.S. dollar to have value, the U.S. government has to have enough continuity to honor its obligations and enough wisdom not to simply print the money associated with those obligations. Okay, And if you look into history, the U.S. dollar is one of the only fiat currencies in the world that successfully passed both of those tests in the 20th century. Will it do so through the 21st century? Uh, I don't know. Now, for a gold coin to have value, you just have to put it in a drawer, somewhere safe. And, you know, that's not so easy. But gold passes the Lindy test, which neither the U.S. dollar nor Bitcoin do. And that means that gold has been a store of value for thousands of years. Now, another way to think about this is trust. With Bitcoin, you have to trust a distributed network of self-interested strangers. 
Now that's okay. It's not great. I'm not thrilled with it, especially from my localist point of view. I'd rather trust people that I know who live near me. But with U.S. dollars, you're trusting the U.S. government. And I'll let you decide how wise that is. Now with gold, of course, you don't have to trust anyone. But gold has its own problems. Now some of those are a little woo-woo, so I won't get into them here. But let's just say that gold calls to gold and leave it at that. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. There's been a lot of crypto news in the last three months, and I'm not smart enough to tell you what's important. There have been level two solutions like ZK Snarks and optimistic rollups and sidechains. There have been uh, NFT drops from, well, everybody. You've seen enormous growth in stablecoins like Tether and USDC and their ability to disrupt cross-border payments and, and remittances. There's been fighting over how legit Cardano is going to be. You have China kicking out its Bitcoin miners. You have worries about Bitcoin energy consumption. You have increased governmental oversight and taxation scrutiny. CryptoPunk selling for almost $12 million. Debates around MEV. Uh, look, I can't keep up, okay? But let's just say the experiment-driven evolution of the crypto space is only accelerating. Now, what have I done? <laughs> well, I liquidated my DAI position on Aave, and I put on a much smaller position by depositing some Matic onto Aave's Polygon protocol. The gas prices were way lower for that because, well, Matic is a sidechain that only occasionally checks back in with the Ethereum main chain, and that's the good news. But the downside is that I think it's going to take me a week to get my money off Matic if I need to. My Matic on Aave is earning about 5% right now with rewards, and that's decent, but it's absolutely swamped by the volatility of the token. So for me at least, Aave hasn't been that great a protocol to play with. However, Aave, like similar protocols, I guess, like Maker or Compound, is still really exciting, I think, at a theoretical level, because as a bank, it's a much better deal for savers and for borrowers, okay? Let's take an example. On the USDC stablecoin, and a stablecoin means it's pegged to the dollar, so there's no token volatility risk, savers can earn 4% right now, versus like, what's a Chase account? Two basis points? And borrowers right now have to pay about 2%. Now, borrowers have to be over collateralized, which means to borrow $75, you have to deposit $100. So you say, logically, what's the point? But you still are earning 4% on those deposits. And at the moment, the return from saving is higher than the cost to borrow. Okay, I don't know if you noticed that, but that is crazy. It's crazy that the return from saving is higher than the cost to borrow. And it gets crazy. At this moment, net of rewards, the cost to borrow, the Tether stablecoin is negative. <laughs> That's right. Right now, there is a negative cost to borrow. Now, all these platforms are not KYC, but they're working on ways to do under collateralized lending, which is more traditional. And bum, 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 this is the big deal. They're working to get institutional deposits. That's the real growth potential. Think of the, I don't know, tens of trillions of dollars out there right now earning negative yields. And, and stablecoin deposit rates on Aave are 4 to 6%. And if deposits rise chasing that yield, then the cost to borrow will come down as well. 
At a very high level, traditional banks are vulnerable to DeFi exactly because they are a government-sanctioned oligopoly who has complete regulatory capture over the Federal Reserve. As a result, they pay depositors too little and they charge borrowers too much. And DeFi may be able to solve both those problems. Now, deep breath. <laughs> there are lots of other DeFi protocols out there that I haven't used. There are, oh gosh, Curve and Cream and, and SushiSwap and PancakeSwap. Yearn. Yearn is a cool one. Yearn has a bunch of vaults you can deposit specific tokens into, and then each vault acts like its own hedge fund. The manager of each vault tries to maximize the return of your deposited deposited token <laughs> through all sorts of complicated ways. Now, a single vault may have 20 strategies going at the same time, which is redonkulous, but those strategies tend to boil down to leverage, yield farming, and I think trading fees. And Yearn now has gotten so big, I think it has almost $4 billion TVL, or total value locked, that it can throw its weight around and get the best yield farming opportunities there are, often by locking its tokens that you deposited up on these other platforms for years at a time on, on platforms like Curve. All right, let's get to the good stuff. Uniswap is the DeFi protocol where I've been spending most of my crypto time and energy. Okay, let me see if I can explain this. Uniswap V3 is an AMM. That's an automated market maker. Anyone like me, like you, can create a market for a pair of tokens like USDC or Tether or DAI or Bitcoin or Ethereum. And each pair, like ETH USDC, is its own liquidity pool. So let's say ETH is trading at 2,500 USDC. Now let's say you want to sell ETH up to say 3,000 USDC and buy ETH down to 2,000 USDC. What you would do is you would deposit or, or stake in the scenario equal amounts of ETH or Ethereum and USDC. Then as long as Ethereum stays between 2,000 and 3,000 USDC, you help make that market and you get fees for every trade based on how much other ETH and USDC have been staked to make a market at each trade's price. So if Ethereum is at 2,900 and very few other people have that price in their range, you will make a lot more fees because you're one of the only people providing liquidity at that price. And this is very important. If you stake $1 into the ETH USDC liquidity pool from 2,000 to 2,500, you would make the same fees as if you would stake $2 at a range from 2,000 to 3,000, right? Because your $1 is spread over half as wide a range. So this is the trick to maximizing fees. You want as tight a range as possible, but you also need to stay in range because once the price leaves the range, you no longer get fees. Now, the third consideration, <laughs> the third consideration is, do you really want to have sold all of your ETH by 3000? And are you happy to buy Ethereum all the way down to 2000? So let's say you pick a tight range, 2,000 to say 2,500, you deposit a bunch of ETH, and then Ethereum goes to 1,000. Well, you're hosed. And if Ethereum goes to say 4,000, you will have lost out on a lot of upside. You will have massive opportunity costs and regret. <laughs> so it's a tricky protocol. It's a tricky protocol. There are lots of things to think about, lots of forces to balance when you decide to set your range. Now me, I'm still figuring this stuff out. 
especially given the vol that we've seen in Ethereum lately. Remember, since my first crypto episode, slightly more than three months ago, Ethereum has gone from 2,900 to 4,300 to 1,800, and now it's back over 2,900 on the strength of the London Fork, the London Hard Fork, (laughs) sounds like a good gastropub, that happened on the 4th of August, right? And that was the EIP-1559 implementation, which is the beginning of Ether 2.0. Now, if you want to know more about that, I would say go to watchtheburn.com, and that will give you a a real-time view of what's happening. Now, personally, I started staking to liquidity pools in Uniswap V3 in late May. So it's been about two and a half months. And I'm basically flat on the principle I put in. And I've made about 10%, I would say, of my principle so far in fees. And that's pretty good, right? That's not too shabby for less than three months. But just a few weeks ago, when Ethereum was below 1800, I was down something like 20 or 30% on my principal. And that felt pretty shabby at the time. So this is not easy money. That said, it's a really intriguing platform. I mean, just as Aave allows you to be your own bank, essentially, Uniswap gives you the ability to create your own stock exchange, essentially. And that's pretty crazy. I'll catch you next week.